0: Dementia in Practice is recorded and produced in multiple locations. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the various lands on which we meet. We pay our respect to Elders past, present and emerging and celebrate the diversity of Aboriginal peoples, their ongoing cultures and connections to the lands and waters of Australia.
1: Really, we spend so much time with someone, some neuropsychologists might spend four or five hours with someone, but you do get to know them quite well. So using that therapeutic relationship and that rapport you feel can be good to take to the next step as well.
2: Hi, welcome back to Dementia in Practice, the podcast that's made by GPs for GPs and for other health professionals who want to learn more about dementia. I'm Hilton Copy, and as always, my colleagues, Dr. Marita Long and Dr. Steph Daly from Dementia Training Australia have joined me. And today we're going to get a bit nerdy because we're going to be talking about neuropsychology. Marita, have you referred many of your patients for neuropsychology assessment?
3: I haven't actually, not directly to neuropsychologists. And I think the number one issue there being that there's always a really long wait list But I know some of the younger patients that I've seen in practice where there's been concerns around cognition, I've always sent off to the memory clinic in our local area. And as part of that process, they always get seen by a neuropsychologist. Steph?
0: Not in my current practice, but when I was working in the multidisciplinary geriatric team, um, we did come across quite a few reports from neuropsychologists. And often it's in the sort of situation where it's not a straightforward diagnosis and you need a bit more background to see what's going on or if perhaps there are some complex capacity issues then neuropsych would often get involved and their reports are lengthy but also fascinating to read it just shows you how much work goes into a neuropsychologist um, report.
2: It's a massive amount of work and it was a sort of work that I really don't know that much about so when I spoke with Professor Sharon Naismith about sleep and learnt that she was a neuropsychologist, I thought we should ask her back to talk with us a little bit about how a neuropsychologist might help for people living with dementia.
1: So I actually started out as a depression researcher uh, working with Ian Hickey, and we were very interested in how depression impacts the brain. Um, as we know that depression is associated with a range of different brain changes. And I guess, you know, understanding then that depression is actually a disease of the brain or a dysfunction in the brain, you know, a couple of decades ago was a really pivotal time where we started to understand that we can do things for the brain to actually increase the brain's health. But also because depression itself is linked to so many cognitive changes, that was interesting you know, to me as well. So well, I guess my interest in neuropsychology really stems from the fact that as a psychologist you learn brain behaviour relationships and that, you know, we have a rudimentary understanding of what the brain actually does. Um, but, you know, the neuropsychology itself was very much grounded and emerged from lesion studies, you know, lesion this part, you get this kind of deficit, which is fascinating for a young student. <laughs> Doing neuropsychology, but I guess kind of tying it together with the real kind of experience of seeing a patient or a client and what they're going through, whether that be depression or another mental health disorder, um, really fascinated me. But in particular, I was kind of interested to know what can we do about it. So I did pursue my career in neuropsychology, but I guess I was a little disappointed that we did a lot of diagnostics you know, what is what is wrong in the brain um, and just really writing reports around that. So we would spend, you know, around eight hours or so on average with a person really kind of taking an in-depth look at the functioning of the brain. So a bit like an MRI scan, but instead the functioning. And of course, we have to spend a long period of time to get to know the mental health aspects and that, you know, where someone's coming from, the day-to-day difficulties that someone's having and then administering these tests that have very, very strong normative databases to really see, well, relative to where that person should be functioning, what are their difficulties? So essentially, we're trained very well um, in doing that. And I think what has impressed me about the discipline is it's very much standardized. So you can go to one neuropsychologist and technically you should get, so the results should be the same um, as going to another neuropsychologist because, you know, the profession is so standardized in that sense. You might get some discrepancies or differences in the interpretation of data that you get from doing that assessment, but essentially the test results themselves um, will always be the same. And in that respect, you can really track very, very closely how the brain is changing um, over periods of six months to a year, and of course, beyond that as well. Neuropsychology is very good at detecting very subtle changes in cognition that can't be detected on gross screening tests. But also looking at how, you know, cognition may improve in response to treatment and how it may change, be that improvements or declines, you know, over the longer term. And then I guess, you know, taking it a step beyond that, what do we do about that? How can we actually enhance someone's cognitive recovery and and help them not only from a neurological perspective, but from a functional or mental health perspective, adapt to those cognitive difficulties that they may have as well?
2: I love how you're interested, not just in focusing on the problems, but uh, using your training and skills, almost like an enablement program to help people live the best possible life. So what I'm hearing you say is that, uh, and tell me if I'm right or wrong, Sharon, that neuropsychology can help in the diagnostic process by being uh, a more fine-tuned testing than what we might do in our in our clinic is, is-
1: yeah look um, that's an excellent question because it's it's something that i find people don't really understand about cognitive tests in general is that you have a cognitive test you might have a mini mental state or something and it just gives you one score but embedded with that what, what you're doing is actually you're testing memory a little bit. Um, you're testing physiospatial functions, you're testing executive functionings, you're you're testing a range of different functions, you know, albeit in a gross manner with the mini mental state. But neuropsychology just does that and does more of it for example the memory testing we really need to first of all try to work out can someone absorb new information how well can they take new information in if they can take it in can you just tell them once or do you need to repeat it so under what conditions can you optimize their learning of new information once that information is in can they store that information so you you really need to test memory after about half an hour you can't you know the mini mental basically you you know, say, you know, give you these three items and say it back in about a minute or so. But really what you're wanting to do is see how well the hippocampus, that key memory structure that's evolved very early in dementia, how well is it storing that information over time? And then sometimes people do store the information, but they can't retrieve it. So they have a recognition problem. So what you're doing in the assessment is you're really building up a profile of what parts of the brain are working well what domains are functioning are working well and which ones are impaired and from that we can then match that I guess with the disease that we may be asked to kind of comment on whether that's Alzheimer's disease or vascular dementia or depression and we know those diseases affect the brain in different ways so from that we can usually say well this profile does look like Alzheimer's disease because actually you've got very early memory change you've got changes in language which you often kind of occur next or earlier, then it's these changes in the parietal lobe functions or the visio skills, and then you might get changes in executive functioning. So what we're doing in many ways is just extending, you know, tests like the mini mental state into much more detailed tests that have a great normative database so they're, they're very sensitive even for high functioning individuals that are highly educated um, and then we're building a profile of you know what the brain looks like how well is it working so in that way when i say it's a bit like an mri scan it kind of is but it's really using the functioning rather than the picture to tell us the story
2: Yeah, so it's like a functional MRI. Yeah, Uh, a
1: bit like that, yeah. But I mean, I guess with functional MRI, we still are not yet at the point where we can put someone in the scanner and say, bang, you know, there are changes in the bold signal and therefore you have X, Y or Z. We kind of not, we haven't yet applied it to clinical practice enough.
2: One of the real challenging things in general practice is differentiating depression and dementia. Could you put them side by side? What If you do neuropsych testing for someone with dementia and neuropsych testing for someone with depression, what differences would you see?
1: Actually, a lot of differences. Depression, you often get the slowing of thinking. Um, so that's very prominent. Sometimes depression is a bit hard to differentiate from vascular dementia because you get that too. But they often occur side by side. But if we're just talking Alzheimer's versus depression, you know, you can, you can have Alzheimer's with depression or Alzheimer's and vascular disease. So it does make it a bit more complicated, but time course is important as well. Um, So we think, you know, when we're asking questions about memory and Alzheimer's disease, we want to start trying to work out when did the memory loss start occurring and has it really gone from memory? So we ask, do a lot of probing. You know, we might say to someone with depression, you know, what, year is it? And They may say, I don't know. That's quite a common answer. But certainly when you give them multiple choice prompts, they usually do know. They are actually able to lay down new memories, but they can't retrieve them as well. So you can get that from the qualitative history. And of course, we get similar patterns when we do the testing of memory as well. So we'll often find that people with depression have some difficulties laying the information down. But what goes in stays in fairly well, and if they can't tell you what you've asked them to learn, you can usually give them prompts and they can get that information back out of memory. But with Alzheimer's disease, it's completely different. So, you know, they may get the information in there and 30 minutes later you'll say, you know, what was that story I read to you or what was the list I asked you to learn? And, you know, they, they'll either not recall it at all um, doing it, so they'll say what list or what story, or um, they'll just have very, very impoverished recall of that information and giving them prompts and things doesn't help. It has just gone from their hippocampus completely. So that the profile in Alzheimer's, I'm talking obviously generalizing here to typical Alzheimer's is very much kind of what we would, would say is a hippocampal type memory problem. Whereas in depression, the changes that occur in the brain are frontal, subcortical. So we get Slowing of processing speed, and we get executive deficits, but we don't typically get those profound changes in memory that we see in in um, Alzheimer's. We also don't get changes in language. So Alzheimer's, you often find there are changes in the ability to lo- name things. So you've got a couple of those kind of naming tests, and things like the MoCA and the and the Mini Mental State. We do use the Boston Naming Test. So again, just a more detailed version of it, which just got normative data. A person with Alzheimer's disease will start losing the names for those things quite early in the disease, typically, whereas a person with depression won't. You don't get that kind of change in the entorhinal cortex and some of the temporal lobe structures that underpin that language functioning. So, yeah, a couple of key differences there in just how we build up the profile of, and how you can kind of, you know, tell those things apart um, just on the basis of how they're performing and which structures are affected and which are
2: intact. It would be so good if there was like five questions that we could ask in general practice that would just separate depression from Alzheimer's. That would just be amazing. Uh, I don't want to do you out of a job or anything, (laughs) Sharon, but God, that would be gold. Um, Well, you know, I
1: think, Hilton, the thing is we do have to support you to be able to do that better because you shouldn't have to be thinking, you know, like that. We actually do need to provide better tests that can be used in general practice that are more sensitive. But certainly, sending everyone to a neuropsychologist is not that feasible, and you probably do want to just save it for the really curly questions, you know, or for the the cases where neuropsychologists can help in the management as well as just as in the diagnosis.
2: I thought after I was talking with Sharon, I just wanted to uh, steal her. And have her sitting on my shoulder at all times and just do that, speed it up, come out with, no, this is definitely depression. I I thought the way she broke things down, it really made sense. And Steph, what was happening for you as Sharon was explaining those differences between dementia and depression, which we do find so challenging in general practice sometimes?
0: I guess it was bringing me back to the course that I did in Bradford, because when we were taught to assess people for Alzheimer's disease, we were actually taught to look at those different cognitive functions in the brain and ask questions around them. So when she was mentioning about asking about language and memory, it reminded me that, you know, that's what we're doing when we're asking in our history taking, trying to identify whether people have deficits across those areas. But I didn't realise that um, specifically with depression, you know, there were differences. Obviously, I knew that memory, you know, with people with Alzheimer's doesn't come back. But it's a useful sort of gauge, I guess, you know, that you can offer prompts and then um, somebody with depression will probably be able to respond. But I guess most of the depression that we see in primary care is probably on the less severe spectrum, I guess. You know, we don't see many people who have really, really slowed communication like probably comes across with people who have been assessed by neuropsychologists. But it is interesting to think about how the brain is working and, and how the questions that you ask are related to that.
2: Yeah, and very much like she spoke about in sleep, about it's not just sleep, it's like getting off to sleep, staying asleep and then waking up and the duration. I loved how she spoke about the three phases of a memory, uh, that it needs to be laid down, it needs to be stored, and then it needs to be recalled. Had you ever thought of it in that way, Marita?
3: Not in so much detail, no. When you said in the opening that we are going to get nerdy, I just kept thinking this is truly nerdy, because it's so complex. and You can see now why Sending someone to a neuropsychologist if there's any, any doubt is so important because it's just so complicated. And, you know, when we tell people, you know, neuropsychology is the gold standard, now I get why that's the gold standard. It's just a pity in lots of ways that we can't access it easily um, when we're trying to work out what's going on for people. But, no, I, hadn't, I had not never thought about the, either sleep or uh, memory like she's explained.
2: Yeah, I think she explains it so well and takes these complex issues and breaks them down into their component parts, which I always thought that was a male paradigm, but it's something that um, Sharon does really well. The other thing that really struck me was that uh, she explained how neuropsychology is very standardised and that it doesn't matter really which neuropsychologist does the test, the results Will um, should be transferable. Marita, I was thinking that just sounds like the opposite of general practice.
3: hundred percent, doesn't it? And I guess that's because the way that we work with patients certainly isn't standardised. There's some things that are standardised and some things that we uh, would all have a similar approach, but we have such a different approach to our patients from that.
2: Which is not a bad thing, Steph, is it? Because our patients are all different as well. So we're able to adapt to the the needs of our specific patients if we do what Sharon talked about, which was it takes a long time to get this information.
0: The other thing, I suppose, is that she talked a lot about tests, didn't she, and using various screening tools and various tests and, you know, then interpreting those. And, you know, one of the things about general practice is that we see so many undifferentiated problems at such an early stage that you know using tests to try and identify things is not actually that practical or useful and we practice in a different way to you know spend a bit of time working things out over a period whilst we try and see what's going to develop and it's a much more i don't know whether it's fluffy or or just experiential process it's not really about testing it's about of waiting for things to evolve and having spider senses to pick on things as they do evolve. It's a kind of different method, and that's why it's not standardised.
2: Yeah, exactly, because of the patients don't always read the textbooks and decide they're going to have one thing or the other. And I spoke uh, in the first part of the interview with Sharon about depression and dementia, and then I went on to ask her a little bit about anxiety as well. So let's hear what she had to say about that.
1: Anxiety is, is actually one of the easier ones because you do typically get that difficulty getting it, that mental block or difficulty getting information into memory. So often on memory tests, you will see that quite prominent, that people just say, I've got no idea what you just said. Um, just It's just gone. <laughs> you know, a person with depression you know, might attempt to tell you some things, but it might be a bit impoverished. So their encoding of the information is a little bit impaired and a person with Alzheimer's may well be able to to absorb all of the information, but the person with anxiety and certainly the mixed anxiety and depression like we see in older people is, you know, fairly classic. Just absorbing that information in the first place is, um, yeah, is is usually what's impaired there. Other functions, though, are generally, you know, Fairly intact. There's there's not gross dysfunction in in their other cognitive functions.
2: I guess it's like meeting someone at a party and you're a bit anxious, and they tell you your, their name, and just it goes straight in one ear and out the exactly.
1: other. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's exactly what it's like on yeah when you're administering the test too.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I'm so fascinated by this idea of using neuropsychology to help people live well with dementia. In what mm. way can a neuropsychologist help someone to live well with dementia?
1: Yeah, well, certainly what we're very good at is identifying strengths and weaknesses. Using someone's strengths to help ameliorate or backfill the weaknesses is actually something that's achievable. um, And and indeed, it's the focus of a lot of the cognitive remediation work that we would do. When you're kind of playing to someone's strengths, you're building on that, but you're also giving someone motivation and encouragement and confidence um, in their cognition, which in turn has a positive and knock-on effect to other functions as well. So, certainly as part of any report that I would ever, do when I do an assessment I would always say you know these are the weaknesses that we found and these are the strengths so these are the things a person can do they have difficulties with their memory but if you keep the information structured um, or if you repeat it or if you give someone multiple choice prompts they actually do really well with their memory you know or likewise so they might have some difficulties with word finding but actually these are the ways that you can get around that the word is in there but they're having some problems retreat it. So, you know, working with them on some strategies around that is important too. The other thing is, is you can do a lot of collaborative goal setting with people once you've got a good understanding of the person and their strengths and weaknesses. And you really, we spend so much time with someone that you really do get to know them after, you know, some neuropsychologist might spend four or five hours with someone, but you do get to know them quite well. So certainly using that Therapeutic relationship and that rapport you've built can be good to then build on to take to the next step as well. It could also be about, you know, try this, you know, from a work perspective. So uh, there are many neurological disorders um, and neurodegenerative disorders where you get quite prominent fatigue. So it could be about, you know, that this person's actually got pretty good attention. But their working memory, their ability to juggle things in mind is not so great. So we can use some post-it notes, you know, to manage that kind of thing in the workplace. Um, but after a couple of hours, you are going to find, you know, there is still some significant fatigue. And so having a break every two hours is important. I'll limit the workday to just four hours because this is when they're kind of cognitively optimal. Um, or these are some other memory prompts that we can use in the workplace to help this person get around, you know, this or that. You know, and taking it even a step further, someone that's got executive deficits, you might find that generating solutions to problems, to make decisions, is a, is an area of weakness for them. And you you find that quite commonly after stroke. Actually, they can make good decisions, but they might have difficulty kind of coming up with the solutions to various problems. So helping them a little bit with that generation is important, but they can still make their own decisions. So it's really just kind of providing that information so that whether it's the family or whether it's the workplace um, colleagues can kind of work with that information to really optimise their cognitive functioning and their strengths wherever possible.
2: So I guess what I'm hearing you say is for people with uh, the early stages of dementia, if they're able to stay in the workplace or stay doing things that give them meaning, uh, that's going to be helpful for them in so many different ways the information that's gained from a neuropsychological assessment can help identify those strengths or where they they need further support is is that
1: absolutely as soon as someone says you know i'm I'm not going to be working anymore because I've got a deficit or my workplace is not understanding or can't support me, you can then get that cycle of disability where, you know, a person loses their identity, they're not yet ready to give up work, they've still got many, you know, functions, a lot of knowledge that's valuable to a workplace, but actually you can then set in this cycle of, you know, depression and other things that then can can actually lead and probably even in turn contribute to dementia. So, My personal sense is, even if it's on a part-time basis, doing something that's got meaning, whether it be work or voluntary activities or something that, you know, is um, considerate of the cognitive difficulties and can provide a bit of a workaround solution for those that the person living with dementia you know, is not penalised in any way or made to feel, you know, that they're not performing or impacts on their self-confidence. As long as those things can be provided in that environment, I think it's actually really important for people to retain that engagement.
2: So it sounds to me like neuropsychologists have got an important role not just in diagnostics, but almost like they could be involved in follow-up appointments with almost like a coaching role for the person with dementia and their family and possibly their workplace as well to help people with their strengths or support as much as possible for them to live a good life.
1: Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. So we're definitely... Um, I would like to think we're moving away from just doing diagnostics, doing a long assessment and writing a report and saying, see you later. You know, we're actually saying, you know, okay, this is what we think is going on, but actually we can now spend, you know, six or 12 sessions working with you on strategies that can optimize your cognition or your memory um, and help you to fulfill your goals. Now, they may be you know in the workplace they may be just in family members looking after grandchildren they may be staying at home to live independently in which case we can put in you know whiteboards and diaries and other kind of strategies within the work you know the home environment that really supports that independent living um, for a person with dementia as long as possible.
2: So Sharon um, in my experience it's uh there are more people with cognitive impairment and dementia than what there are neuropsychologists. And uh, so it's, it's important for me to know which sort of people would benefit most from seeing a neuropsychologist. I wonder what your thoughts are about that.
1: Yeah, sure. So I think it's important to think about the kind of profile of symptoms that you're seeing and also the background of that individual So certainly someone that um, is highly educated or has had a fairly high-functioning position that might say that they're having cognitive difficulties, or someone in their workplace is reporting them, or their family are reporting them, then often that is a sign that there are some subtle changes going on. So not only for Alzheimer's and vascular, you know, dementia, but also for some of the more unusual dementias as well. So certainly in um, dementias like frontotemporal dementia, you might get very early changes in social cognition. So there, that's quite unusual for someone's personality to be changing, you know, and for them to be all of a sudden blurted out things that are completely inappropriate, you know, to people, for example, or to be all of a sudden a very subdued person when they were normally, you know, very outgoing and gregarious. So I think thinking about the symptom cluster is important, thinking about what is their role. Certainly, as neuropsychologists, we are also encouraged to think also about prevalence. So, you know, if someone in their 20s is coming in um, and you're thinking about Alzheimer's disease, unless it's an early onset form of Alzheimer's disease, the familial form associated with the gene mutation, obviously, you wouldn't, so you wouldn't be considering necessarily that in that case. So, you know, someone in their early 60s, if they're still working and they're certainly saying they're having functional decline at work or unable to perform their job, I would be considering it in that case because the kinds of things that you might pick up on the screening test, which is just one part of the toolkit, are not necessarily the entire story. So we need to understand really what's happening in the workplace, how long has it been going on for, um, and what is the extent of the difficulties that someone's having. Have other people noticed it, you know, and has anything happened as a result of it? They're all very important things to be considering.
2: In our previous episodes, we've spoken a lot about the value of an earlier diagnosis in dementia and listening to Sharon speaking then, it really became so apparent to me that if we're going to take a strength-based or enablement-based approach to dementia, the earlier that it's known, the greater the opportunity for changes to be made that can have a positive impact. What were your thoughts about that, Steph?
0: Well, I mean, I know Sharon works with people with younger onset dementia primarily, so she's often coming into contact with people who are still working. But It really does highlight the importance of, you know, the earlier you make the diagnosis, the more chance people have of working on those workarounds to manage skills that they may be at the risk of losing, but work on ways in which they can maintain those skills. And that's, I think, the bottom line here it's about helping people to live well with dementia and that that means maintaining your skills where possible and enjoyment of life and meaningful activity and so the earlier you make your diagnosis the more likely you are to be able to enable people to do that and the way that she was explaining how some of that st- cognitive stimulation works um, and and how you can really provide people with the tools to do that just emphasises why it's so important. Regardless of all the other things that we've talked about in the past about the importance of a timely diagnosis, it really is important for the
2: person. And, and knowing what's of value and importance to them as we've spoken in so many of our episodes. So Marita, so much of what Sharon had to say just really highlighted to me the value that a neuropsychologist can add to the care of people living with dementia. So I know at some of the memory clinics there are neuropsychologists, but the waiting times to get to a memory clinic is long and the amount of time that a person can stay on the books is short. Just wondering what your thoughts about access to neuropsychologists and perhaps how can Medicare help or is there areas in Medicare that reform might be really beneficial.
3: Yeah, I was thinking about when Sharon was talking about the sort of work that a neuropsychologist can do and I really started to feel like, you know, we sort of are living in a really ageist society actually because if you've got a neurodivergent kid or adult, what do we do? We have all sorts of supports to be able to help them learn well at school and uh, learn well at university. You think of the students who have learning plans to help facilitate or have extended times to do their exams so they're not disadvantaged by perhaps some of the challenges that they have. But we're not even thinking about it with our older population, are we? We're sort of it's almost like oh they're retired and they're, they're not contributing to society anymore or there's something there that why are we not allowing access for them to be able to live well in their later years? you know, and it can make such a difference. So I guess, you know, there's been strong push and a lot of money go into mental health treatment plans. And really, I guess, part of our role in some ways is to continue to highlight that this is an area of need. And it is an increasing issue because we're seeing more and more people living longer and then we are seeing more and more people living with dementia and we should be able to do what we can to support them well, just like we would any other of our patients. So there's definitely a need there, but I'm guessing, you know, some ways maybe is if we can at least get an assessment done for some of these people, then there's probably from the report they give something that we can even start doing, even with perhaps a clinical psychologist to help them use this, you know, this strength-based approach.
2: Mm. Thanks so much for highlighting the differences in support in the community for uh, younger people compared to older people. Uh, Really, when you were talking then, I thought, yeah, this is just wrong.
3: Mm. It is, isn't it? But it is, we do have that, you know, ageist lens often. And it's very, um, you know, probably subconscious for a lot of us. But it certainly is there and you just think of the language that you use often around older people as well and it's short; it sort of reflects, you know, the value. I mean, we could talk more about the aged care system but, you know, we won't do that.
2: Yes, well, that's another podcast. (laughs)
3: That's another podcast.
0: I guess it's because you, you know, until you become an older person, you don't recognize what being an older person is and so then it's the older population who are having to advocate for all these things and the younger Mm. population just ignore them my mum's always going on about that
3: Mm. (laughs) generally Mm. and there was just another thing that I really found interesting that um, Sharon brought up was the anxiety side of things because we often talk about the young often younger people who are coming in telling us that they think they have dementia because they went to a party the other day and they couldn't remember the person's name. They'd just been introduced or, you know, whether it be they, they go to the fridge and they can't remember what they've gone into the fridge for. I, I think I've got dementia, doctor. What do they often have? Thank Anxiety. <laughs> yeah, it's often how we actually get to diagnose anxieties because that's the thing they're recognising and it it's the thing that upsets them the most. Yeah, so I thought that was really interesting the way she kind of explained how you would pick that apart from a someone with um, Alzheimer's.
2: Yeah, and that's a great segue, Marita, into thinking about the next episode of Dementia in Practice. So, Steph, uh, you've been looking into younger onset dementia.
0: That's right. And um, we've had a really interesting conversation with a very experienced neurologist who will give us some perspectives on, you know, perhaps some of the differences, but also the similarities between uh, people who experience dementia, perhaps in their 50s versus those in their 70s.
2: It's a really important topic that looking forward to bringing to you. But in the meantime, if you want more resources, head to our website, dta.com.au slash GP or follow Dementia Train Australia on Facebook or at Dementia Train AU on Twitter.
3: And don't forget to tell your colleagues or friends about this podcast and leave us a nice glowing review if you listen in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. See you next time. If you're a person living with dementia, or if you're a family member or carer of someone living with dementia, Dementia Australia has some great resources. The National Dementia Helpline is 1800 100 500 or you can visit dementia.org.au
2: Dementia in Practice is an initiative of Dementia Training Australia which is funded by the Australian Government.